Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. I would invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 22. I believe that's on the back of your bulletin as well. Uh, We'll be focusing mainly on verses 16 through 18, but I'll read all the way to 22. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22, it says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, But examine everything closely, carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Well, friends, the Apostle Paul at this point of the letter is approaching the end. And he's now concluding his ideas that he's been sharing with this church with a few words. And these words are meant to give us clear directives about how we should live in light of everything that he said. And not only how we are to live, but how we're to have hope. Hope that's established on the truth that God will accomplish it. In fact, in verse 23 of chapter 5, we're told that God himself will sanctify us. It's almost like Paul saying at the end of this letter, now dear brothers and sisters, go and do, and I know that God himself will do it in you. Paul wrote this blessed letter to the church in Thessalonica. This was a church, as we've seen in earlier chapters, that was full of faith, hope, and love. It was a church that Paul planted, but it was also one that he had to leave early because of persecution. He goes there and he stays in Jason's home, and within a short time he's forced to leave. And he goes on to another town. But even without this beloved apostle being with the Thessalonians, we find out very soon that they are the real deal. Because as Paul writes to them, he says that they received God's word as God's word. That Paul's words that he preached to them, they received as the very words of God. And because of that, they became an example to churches all over. Macedonia and Achaia. It says that sounding forth from them in chapter 1, sounding forth from them everywhere was was the word of the Lord. And so what we've done is we've marveled at this church's bright light. We've marveled at their shining star, at their lantern in the midst of darkness. And we've dreamed ourselves, how can we be more like this? How can it be said of King's Tree Church that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from us all over? All over Winston-Salem, all over the triad, all over our country, all over the world. How can we be like the Thessalonians like this? And the answer, friends, is that we must be a church that is holy. And we saw in chapter 3 that God causes us to increase and to abound in love so that our hearts would be established in holiness. So He causes us to increase and abound in love so that our hearts will be established in holiness. 
which tells me that if we want to be a church that grows in holiness, then at the root of that, we need to have hearts that are growing in love. That love for God and love for one another is the environment in which we become more holy. That's exactly what we've seen as we've turned to chapter 5. Because verses 12 through 22, we see this type of love being exemplified in the commands that Paul gives us. In verses 12 through 14, a couple weeks ago, we saw his love, his, his call to love one another. So he told us to love the leaders in the church because of their gospel work. He told us to love the unruly, to love the faint hearted, to love the weak. And to love each other by always seeking one another's good, not repaying evil with evil. But it's such a shame that today many professing Christians think that their vertical relationship to God is all that's important. Dear friends, if only we knew that the God we claim to love and this vertical relationship to Him tells us time and time again to be involved in horizontal relationships where we love one another. You see, we can't claim to love what God loves. We cannot claim to care about what God cares about. We cannot claim to cherish what God cherishes without loving the church, without loving His people, because He loves His people. He cares about His people. He cherishes His people. Jesus Himself said it's by our love for one another that the world will know that we're His followers. In John 17, He prayed that we would be established in love and unity so that the world would know the Father sent the Son. And so the world would know that the Father loves us just like He loved Christ. So if we want to be a church that becomes an example to others, if we want to be a church in which the Word of the Lord sounds forth from us, we must be a church that loves one another. And so that's why Paul gave us verses 12 through 14. But now, in verses 16 through 22, Paul does address our vertical relationship to God. To claim love for one another is just simply not enough. It does no good for any one of us to care for each other without a care for God. It does no good for us to have an interest in loving one another without an interest in loving the one who God create, um, uh, the one who created us. Being nice. Being kind, being cordial, that's only half the equation. And it's not even half if it's not a kindness that's rooted in Christ's kindness for us and a love for Him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it was the love of Christ that controlled Him. So Paul now calls us in these verses this morning to consider our relationship with our Creator. Is this not important? I've been encouraged time and time again and I've learned a great deal from watching men and women who love others well. Their children well, their friends well, the church members well. But to see a man walk humbly with God, that is truly spectacular. To behold a child of God who is at peace in his heart or her heart and mine, because they're content in the Lord. Is there anything greater than that? To observe 
a man or a woman in their Bible on their knees, constantly in communion with their Maker, I can hardly think of anything that's more remarkable to observe than that. And so I commend to us this morning God's Word, which is charging us to work on our spiritual lives vertically with God. Encouraging us to take note of our joy, of our prayer, and our thankfulness. And as we'll see, at the root of this joy, at the root of this thankfulness, is prayer. What example might we be to the churches all over? How might the word of the Lord sound forth from us if we were a people who rejoiced always, who prayed without ceasing, and who gave thanks in everything? I'm sure you recognize the three commands in verses 16 through 18. They're plain to see with the naked eye. You don't need any experience and interpretive skill in order to notice them. There's three verses and three commands. In verse 16, we're told to rejoice always. Verse 17 commands us to pray without ceasing. And the 18th verse asks us to give thanks in everything. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Now, each one of these verses is worthy of its own sermon on their own. I mean, is there not at least an hour's worth that could be said about rejoicing always? Is there not at the bare minimum a full sermon's worth that could be directed at praying without ceasing? And how about giving thanks? Could we not spend all morning contemplating its meaning and its implications for our lives? Because the truth be told, we are not always joyful like we should be. I don't think there's anyone in here who would say, my prayer life is perfect. And it's also an unfortunate plague among many Christians that we are often ungrateful people who complain and bicker and whine. And given the crises in our nation at this current juncture, are we not at more risk of falling away from joy and into despair? Isn't it our temptation to rely on our strength, our arguments, our politics, instead of our God in prayer? And how easy is it to moan and bicker and complain in the current climate rather than being thankful to God in everything? And in case you thought you read that wrong, it does say in everything, be thankful. The issue is that there's three sermons that could be devoted to these three verses, but our goal is to cover all three verses this morning. And so I want to begin by pointing out two things about these three commands. Two things about these three commands. Here's the first one. Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks should be marks of the Christian life. They should be marks of the Christian life. Notice how the commands are accompanied by words that push us to do them all the time. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. So what could that imply? If Paul's telling Christians to do these three things all the time, what does that say about the Christian life? And I just encourage you to think. Does it not imply that the Christian life ought to be marked by these qualities, by these three actions, 
What if a student that you know, what if you went to them and told them that they need to work hard and that they need to study daily? Aren't we saying that the student's life should be marked by hard work and study? Or what if we say to an employee that they ought to work every day, that they ought to remain focused, that the, and that they ought to always be respectful to customers? Aren't we implying that the employee's work should be marked by showing up every day, staying on task, and being respectful? Well, when Paul says to rejoice and pray and give thanks all the time, isn't he doing the same thing? Isn't he implying that the life of the Christian should be marked by joy? It should be marked by prayer. It should be marked by gratitude. It's hard to imagine any other reason why we'd be asked to do these things always if they aren't meant to be defining characteristics for us Christians. And I think this should stretch us, brothers and sisters. Because listen carefully here. These are not just commands to be obeyed. These are qualities to be possessed. Is this not the point of the end of verse 18 that says, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now just stop and think for a moment. When Paul says that it's God's will for you, that these things happen, is he emphasizing that it's God's will for you to simply be obedient to these commands? Or is he emphasizing that it's God's will for you to have joy and prayer and gratitude? Are they not one and the same? If God Himself will sanctify you, and God Himself will cause you to be obedient to these things, will you not also get what's to be achieved in the end? The joy, the prayer, the gratitude. Is this not what God wants you to have? These are more than commands to be obeyed. These are qualities to be possessed if you're in Christ. The Christian life ought to be marked by joy, by prayer, by gratitude. What a shame it is, friends, to be a Christian with a life marked by despair, prayerlessness, and ungratefulness. It shouldn't be that way. But perhaps your soul is troubled. Some of you here this morning who are deeply grieved, you've experienced pain and suffering over the last few months. A few of you might feel okay now, but you'll face intense pain in the near future. And you might have a temptation to respond to, this, to these three commands negatively. You could think, how can my life be marked by joy, prayer, and gratitude when it's also marked by so much pain and suffering? And to that question... I'll direct you to a second observation of this text. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus, here's number two, to always have an overflowing reason for joy, a constant way of prayer, and a great basis and foundation for thanksgiving. More simply put, it's God's will for you to always have a reason for joy, prayer, and gratitude. Our first point we observe that since Paul tells us to do these three things all the time, it implies that our lives should be marked by them. But here we make another observation. If Paul tells us to do these three things all the time, it implies that we must always have a reason to do them. 
as those who are in Christ Jesus, is God giving us these three commands knowing that we can't keep them? I don't think so. And while we may not always perfectly keep these commands, being a Christian means that we now have a relationship with God in which we can always keep these commands. Just think about it. God's love for you is so large, His disposition towards you so kind, His will for you so loving that no matter the sorrow, no matter the struggle, no matter how intense the pain, we will always, always have an occasion and a reason for joy. Always an occasion for prayer. Always an occasion for thanksgiving so that we can faithfully do these three verses. As Christians, this means there's never a time in which we could or should be given over into total despair or utter prayerlessness or without anything to be grateful for. No, friends, joy, prayer, and gratitude are God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And the fact that He commands you to do them shouldn't be seen as a ball and chain. These commands shouldn't be viewed as a burdensome task. They should be received as a wonderful gift. That God has saved me, God has brought me into a condition where there will always be a reason to rejoice. There will always be a reason to pray. Always an occasion for thanksgiving. No matter the sorrow, you'll always be able to obey these commands. Do you have the pains of sickness? Well, then what a joy to know that your sick soul has been cured. Do you have the fears of persecution? Well, then what a joy to know that no man can separate you from the love of Christ. Do you suffer from the loss of a job? Well, what joy to be a child of a good father who always cares for his children. Do you experience the shame of sin? What a remarkable joy to know that there's no more condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Are you close to your final breath? When that day comes, what a joy to know that being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Friends, these joys would simply not be available if you weren't a Christian. They'd be offered to you, but you couldn't claim them for your own. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you have to ask yourself, do I have a basis? Do I have a constant hope so that in any given situation, I could still have joy? I could still have communion with God. I could still have gratitude. You see, my friend, even for the Christian facing death itself is no reason to be given over into total despair or hopelessness. Are you in such a condition? Could you say with Paul these words in 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10? We are regarded as deceivers and yet true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. It sounds like a bunch of oxymorons. How can I be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? How can I have nothing, yet possess all things? 
We can have those things in Christ who endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. For the salvation of all those who would believe. And so in these three commands, we've seen two things when it tells us to do them all the time. Being commanded to do these three things all the time implies that joy and prayer and gratitude ought to be marks of our Christian lives. And it also implies that we always have a reason for them in Christ Jesus. It's God's will that we as Christians be marked by these three qualities and that we always have a sufficient basis for experiencing them no matter what. But of course it would be foolish to pretend that we flawlessly even do the first thing. Rejoice always. The truth is that many of us experience joy and then distress and then joy and then sorrow and then joy and then discontentment and then joy and then anxiety. And the question is, what should we do then if we want to remain obedient to these things? Well, may I suggest that prayer, that thanks-filled prayer is the means to rejoicing always? That there's some kind of logic here in Paul's mind when he tells us to rejoice always and then follows it by a command to pray without ceasing. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says on this very text. He says, The position of our text is very suggestive. Observe what it follows. It comes immediately after the precept to rejoice evermore. As if that command had somewhat staggered the reader and made him ask, how can I always rejoice? That's our question. And therefore, the apostle appended as answer, always pray. The more praying, the more rejoicing. Prayer gives a channel to the pent up sorrows of the soul. They flow away and their stead streams of sacred delight pour into the heart. At the same time, the more rejoicing, the more praying. When the heart is in a quiet condition and full of joy in the Lord, then also will it be sure to draw nigh unto the Lord in worship. Holy joy and prayer act and react upon each other. And so Spurgeon sees a logical connection between rejoicing always and praying without ceasing. And John Piper makes note of the same thing. He says, what's the key then to this rejoicing or this delight? Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Verse 18 says, in everything give thanks. So the answer seems to be that continual prayer and thanksgiving is a key to the rejoicing or the delighting in God. Now it matters very little if I or Piper or Spurgeon say this. Does the Bible say it? That's the question. Does the Bible say it? And so I'd like us to stumble across Philippians 4. That text is also provided for you on your bulletin. Verses 4 through 7. And as I read it, I want you to take notice of the order. You'll see rejoicing, then praying, and thanksgiving. Follow sort of in the same order as what we have here. Same writer. Paul's writing this. So Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice. In the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So verse 4 gives us the same command. He says it twice. Rejoice always. But we know that there's anxieties that creep into our hearts. Anxieties that threaten to destroy our joy. And so Paul says, don't be anxious in verse 6. Keep rejoicing. Don't be anxious. How? In everything by what? Prayer. Rejoice always. Don't be anxious, but pray. So the way that we can rejoice always is if we're not overwhelmed by anxiety. And the way we fight that anxiety is through prayer. And so I say that prayer is the weapon that we're supposed to yield to fight for joy. Prayer is one of the great means for being able to rejoice always and you feel like you can't. So I want to conclude our time this morning by going deeper into just that command. Pray without ceasing. I want us to see what this doesn't mean and then what it does mean. What it doesn't mean and what it does mean. First, let's deal with what prayer without ceasing doesn't mean. And as we do, I think we're going to discover a greater reality to what the nature and essence of prayer really is. I think it's obvious that pray without ceasing doesn't mean to constantly speak out loud in prayer to God. How could you even practically do this? Just consider. We know from 1 Corinthians that God calls us to a type of order when we come together as as the body of Christ. In order so that everyone can hear, everyone can learn, everyone can be edified. So surely we couldn't be orderly if all 20 of us walked in here this morning praying out loud and never stopped. It would be chaotic. No one would hear anyone. How could we even be slow to speak and quick to listen if all you did was speak out loud by prayer constantly? So surely, praying without ceasing can be accomplished without using our voice all the time. There's another way to fulfill this command. There must be. It's also clear that it can't mean to pray with some particular posture 24-7. If praying without ceasing requires us to be on our hands and and on our knees, or with our face to the ground, or whatever it is that you do when you pray in your lonesome, well, if that's the posture I'm supposed to assume 24-7, well then, how could I go and work with my hands and earn a living? How could I stand up and walk or even practically leave the current posture and go and travel the world and bring the gospel to people far and wide if it requires me to stay in a particular posture? So, of course, praying without ceasing can surely be accomplished without being in the same posture all the time. It's also clear that praying without ceasing doesn't mean to always be at the same location to pray. If prayer required you to be in a church building or a prayer closet or a prayer garden, then how could one pray without ceasing when you go to work? How could could someone pray without ceasing when you go to take a shower or to drive in the car? So it's obvious that praying without ceasing must be possible 
without being in the same location all the time. And so we see that in order to pray without ceasing, talking out loud, assuming a constant posture, being in a particular location all the time is not necessary. This means that the mode, the posture, the location are not vital elements to prayer. We should have times of crying out loud to God. Especially when we're overwhelmed and that's all we know to do. It's a good thing to bow down and to pray as a sign of humility and deep dependence. Sometimes your body may thrust you into that position. You may not even be able to control it because you're so overwhelmed with grief. It's a good thing to have a place to go and pray. A location of solitude that can be a great blessing to be able to get alone and spend time with God. But we can't do these things or be in these places or be in these postures forever and still be faithful to all the commands that God asks us. So there must be another way to faithfully live this out. Paul must mean something else, which leads us to our second question. What, is, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, friends, this phrase means two things for our lives. Praying without ceasing is a great instruction and it's also a great invitation. So then the words pray without ceasing are clearly first an instruction from God. It's a command. It's an instruction to pray. So there's at least four things to say about what this instruction means. What God instructs us to do by this. First, God's instructing us to always be in a spirit of prayer. To always walk with a desire to commune with Him. To always have a sense of dependence upon Him. As Christians, our default position should be to pray. You know, when you go to reset a certain device, like your phone, they default back to some kind of factory preset. The whole engine, the whole electronic, the whole device is calibrated to do this. Unfortunately, many of us do not default to a stance of prayer. We do not default to a deep communion and a deep dependence upon God. Many of us default to checking out mentally and not even dealing with the issue. Some of us default to picking up the phone and talking to a friend first before I'd ever talk to God. Some of us default to ignoring certain responsibilities that we have. Or maybe we default by buckling down to just solve the problem by our own strength, by my own power. But as Christians, our default position should not be to ignore problems. They should not be to primarily seek out the help of others. They should not be primarily to rely on our own strength. Our default should be to seek God from God Him, seek help from God Himself. And of course, He's going to use others. That's why He's given us the church. He, he's going to ask us to work hard. But dear Christian, don't you know that without God you are utterly powerless? Paul Washer used to teach his preaching students, and he said this, he used to teach them that they can't preach without the power of God. And then he said, but now I teach them that they can't breathe without the power of God. As God's people, our hearts should default to talking to Him, should default to asking for His help, casting our cares, expressing our thanks, and so on. 
What does your heart default to? That's the question. Are you praying without ceasing? Are you like Spurgeon who would walk down a path in the woods talking with a friend in the middle of the sentence would say, hey, look at this log. Let's go over there and kneel down and pray. And then go right back into the walk as though nothing happened. God's instructing us to always be in a spirit of prayer. Always to be in communion with God and dependence upon Him. Second, God's instructing us to never stop praying. To never abandon the practice. To never forsake it in the first place. And I suppose that there's a few reasons why someone would want to do this. Either A, they've grown tired of praying for the same thing over and over and over again without receiving what he's asked for. So the person quits. Pray without ceasing if that's you. Keep asking. Keep requesting. Keep weeping. Keep crying. Keep knocking. Don't abandon prayer. Or maybe the person's grown tired of praying because they failed to remember what prayer really is. That it's communication with God, with the God of the universe. Communication in which God bids us to come and ask. Communication that without which some things would never happen unless we prayed for them. So don't grow forgetful of who it is that you're talking to in prayer. Every time that your heart is moved to prayer, be reminded that you're drawing near to the throne of God, the creator of everything. So pray without ceasing. Don't give up. Maybe there's a third reason why someone would be tempted to abandon prayer. And that's because he or she fails to see their need for God. Are you about to preach or share the gospel with a friend? Don't you need God's aid? Are you about to correct your child for the 300th time today and it's not even lunch? Don't you need God's wisdom? Are you going to talk to your friend about the issue that they're struggling with? Wouldn't you like God's guidance? What about the big decision that you have to make coming up? Can you possibly make it on your own? You see, it's not those who think that they're strong who pray. The strong don't pray. I have no need to pray. It's those who know that they're weak who pray. So don't abandon prayer because you feel like skipping it would be more efficient. Pray without ceasing. Friends, the third thing is that God's instructing us to pray regularly. Yes, pray without ceasing means to be in a spirit of prayer. Surely it it means also to have regular times of prayer. Pray by the morning, pray by the evening, pray before your meals. Have sporadic times of prayer throughout the day. Your heart might be moved to prayer throughout the day, but surely God intends for us to also continue the practice of regular disciplined prayer when He tells us to pray always. So pray without ceasing. And fourthly, by implication, God's instructing us to do everything as though we're bathing it in prayer. If if you're constantly praying... Aren't you constantly seeking God's help and wisdom in the things you do? Well, then how could you be in a spirit of constant prayer while indulging in the things that dishonor Him? This is what led Spurgeon to say, 
Well, then, have nothing to do with that which you cannot ask God's blessing upon. Have nothing to do with it. For if God cannot bless it, you may depend upon it that the devil has cursed it. Anything that is right for you to do, you may consecrate with prayer. And let this be a sure gauge and test to you. If you feel that it would be an insult to the majesty of heaven for you to ask the Lord's blessing upon what is proposed to you, then stand clear of that unholy thing. If God does not approve, neither must you have fellowship therewith. You see, if you're walking in a constant spirit of communion, a constant spirit of dependence upon God, then you would be sensitive to know if whether or not what you're doing would honor Him. If you're doing a thing that God would not bless in prayer, have nothing to do with it. So with these four things, we've seen that Paul means in the instruction for us to pray without ceasing. We need to close with one other thing about what this command means. It's not merely instruction. It's also an invitation. Did you know it's a privilege to be commanded to pray all the time? Because I think what happens is that most of us look at a command like this and we complain about how hard it would be to do it. And so what we do is we try to figure out exactly what Paul means because surely he can't mean to do it all the time. What a shame it is to view this command like it's a harsh enslavement. How many of us look at this command and worship God for the grand honor and opportunity it is to do it? God's commanding you to pray always. He's telling you to draw near to Him all the time. He's requesting that you constantly have the Creator's ear. He's instructing you to receive strength forever from the only one who can give it. And we complain and we grumble about how hard a thing it is to do. I have a question. Would you complain and grumble if a king told you to stay in communication with him? Or would you be flattered? Would you be excited to do it? Well, then why should we view this command as only an instruction to keep instead of an invitation to be received? Dear Christian, all you have to do is simply pray. Because in the same command, asking you to pray, God is promising an infinite blessing in return. When God tells you to pray without ceasing, He's promising to give you His ear all the time. When God tells you to ask always, He's promising His willingness to answer and care for you always. When God commands you to cast your cares upon Him daily, He's promising to give you grace to overcome them daily. When God tells you to pray when you're anxious, He's promising His peace, which surpasses all understanding. And all of this is so that you could rejoice always.